welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Mark Galasco, who is the military advisor at PAX, the largest peace organization in the Netherlands that works to protect civilians against acts of war, to end armed violence, and to build inclusive peace. Mark has split his long career between the military and human rights spheres, where he has tried to bridge the gap between the two communities. He began his career as the chief of high-value targeting at the Pentagon between 1997 and 2003, where he led targeting teams during operations Iraqi Freedom, Desert Fox, and Allied Force. Mark later worked in senior roles at Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, and the Center for Naval Analyses. Throughout his time, he has worked in Afghanistan, Gaza, Georgia, Iraq, Israel, Kosovo, Lebanon, Libya, and other conflict zones. He's a co-author of the ICRC report on explosive weapons in populated areas. And since the middle of last year, Mark is also a co-host of the excellent The Civilian Protection Podcast that tells the story of those harmed by war, but whose voices are rarely heard. Mark joins me today to speak about the targeting process, harm to civilians, and unseen costs of war. Mark, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Hey, it's my pleasure, Mas. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm speaking to another podcaster, which is uh, which is uh, an interesting uh, 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 experience for me. So uh, yeah, don't hold uh, any faux pas uh, against me. But uh, before we get into your extensive career and some of the experiences you've had, uh, maybe we can start with uh, how you firstly got into the into the Pentagon uh, and why why targeting. How did you uh, uh, how did the life lead you down that path? Yeah, you know, uh, I just kind of fell into it, to be honest with you. I was in uh, graduate school getting my master's degree at the Elliott School of International Affairs at GW in Washington, D.C. And um, one of the the fellows who was a year ahead of me, a friend of mine, he was working in the Pentagon at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And, you know, one of the things you're doing when you're in university, you're, you're looking for a job, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we, we got to chatting and he said, oh, you know, we're going to be doing a big hiring push. Uh, and so I said, hey, you know, here's here's my resume. And I, I threw my resume in the hat and lo and behold, they gave me a ring and I went in and had the interview and absolutely crashed and burned <laughs> <laughs> and uh, walked away without a job. Um, but then uh, got a ring from another division. And went in and I hit that one out of the park, did quite well. Uh, and, and I got the job. I have to say, though, I started out in something that I really had no business being in. Mm. Uh, I, I began working in information operations. Right. And a lot of computer network attack, computer network defense. And mm. that's really not my forte. Mm. And so after about a year, I transitioned and started working uh, in more of a, um, a leadership uh, analysis role, 
mm-hmm. got into doing leadership analysis at Defense Intelligence Agency, which is right across the river from the Pentagon. Mm. And just you know, so everyone knows the the way that the U.S. intelligence community works, the Defense Intelligence Agency is basically the intelligence for the military, for the Pentagon, mm-hmm. you know, national mm-hmm. level. Uh, whereas the Central Intelligence Agency provides intelligence to you know civilian leadership like the president. Right. DIA does that for for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and 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 the military and whatnot. Right. Right. Uh, and so we're the the DIA is headquartered in the Pentagon. But you know, there's not enough space there. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a mighty big building. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the the intel folks, most of them are, are across the river in in Bowling Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And so I started working there on leadership, and I just kind of lucked into uh, some hot accounts. Uh, mm. I started working leadership on um, on Serbia. Right. And okay. that's yeah, I started working leadership on Serbia, and that's when Allied Force started. Mm-hmm. And so I did targeting um, uh, battle damages. I was on the battle damage assessment team and I did targeting for uh, for the conflict against Serbia and then actually went to Kosovo uh, after the war, uh, really right after it was com- finished. It was August of 99. Mm. And that was my first experience on the ground, seeing what happens, you know, what the reality yeah. of war is and going there and doing uh, conducting a battle damage assessment. Wow. And then I transitioned to the Iraq account. Sorry, just before I, I yeah. have to, as a, as a ethnic Bosnian, yeah. somebody who's been uh, directly impacted by uh, uh, by the Balkan wars, when you say leadership of Serbia, you were you were uh, as in, what does that mean uh, for the uneducated audience? What what, is, what do you mean when you were doing uh, uh, analysis of leadership? Yeah, so when you're doing that, you're basically trying to. Um, find, fix, locate, and uh, determine where important individuals in a country's leadership are going to be mm-hmm. uh, should uh, national command authority decide to target them mm-hmm. uh, during a conflict. And so, so we talk people you know, like Milosevic in this we're, case. Exactly. Yeah. yeah we're okay. talking Slobodan yeah. Milosevic. We're yeah. talking about the security forces that kept him in power mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and the telecommunications infrastructure mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Uh, that he communicated through. Uh, and also a number of the, the, the leaders in, you know, the, the Serbian um, intelligence forces, mm-hmm, military mm-hmm. forces, et cetera. And so, you know, that was, that was basically yeah, uh, wow. what I did for Allied Force. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, yeah. Uh, uh, incredible. Uh, and then, of course, as part of the bombing campaign, I guess in that instance, you weren't part of the targeting team. You were part of the analysis that was feeding information into the targeting. Is that, is that how that would have worked? Yeah, so we were making target recommendations. Right. Uh, we were providing recommendations to to uh, UCOM, which is European Command, which was actually conducting uh, the conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everything from, um, you know, telecommunications. So, so for example, uh, if we got a, a request that said, okay, we want to stop Milosevic from speaking to his, you know, military forces in this area, how do we mm-hmm. do it? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the reply would be something like, okay, well, you want to take down these 10 telecom towers simultaneously and, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then you work with the weaponeers to try to determine what the, the proper munitions are for it. Uh, and then you work through the collateral damage assessment, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. you know, you work very closely with the, with the, um, the targeting individual. So, you know, that's that's really what that was. And then I was on the, the battle damage assessment team. And then I went to Kosovo and actually went on the ground. And it was quite amazing to me because this really, I guess it set my career up 
for the future mm. uh, because uh, you know I had my list of targets and we were going site to site and you know you have your GPS coordinates this is what the target was this was the munition and we would get to a site conduct some interviews look through the area see if the weapon had functioned properly mm. did the you know was the function of the facility uh, destroyed partially destroyed etc and I, you know, I asked my boss, I said, so where do we put the civcats? You know, mm. where do we put the civilians? Mm. And he said, well, you know, we don't, we don't do that. You know, we, we mm. don't, we don't do body counts. And so I thought that was part of the, the deal. You know, I thought that was part of the whole equation. Um, and I, I was quite surprised because I thought, you know, Hey, if we do these, these different analysis and say, okay, X number of civilians are going to be killed in a strike. Mm. Does anyone ever go and check to see mm. if those many civilians were killed? Because mm. if is a lot fewer, you should be, you know, you could maybe use bigger bombs or more mm. bombs or, you know, be more destructive. Um, mm. But if there are more civilians killed, maybe you need to take more precautions and maybe we need to, to learn some things. And so that really um, kind of set me up where I started to think about things like that. Why did we not have, and I'm going to include Australia here as well, I guess, because I'm, I'm or, or, you know, NATO, uh, maybe writ large and, and, and NATO partners. Why was this not part of the calculation at that point in time? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, looking back, I've never really gotten uh, a, mm. a, a, a really good answer to it. Um, I can tell you, you know, now they certainly do it not, not very well. Uh, mm. And I can talk to a, a lot of the details of that, mm. um, but it, it it really kind of set things up as I moved toward to the Iraq account. Yeah, uh, because you know now we're talking. You know, the the uh, as the U.S. was continuing, you know, to, to to fight Iraq. Let's not forget at that time you had what was known as ONW and OSW, Operation mm. Northern Watch and Southern Watch. And you know, mm. a lot of people don't think about it, but Iraq was being bombed by the by the U.S. fairly regularly. Um, you know, in the north and in the south, prior to the 2003 war. Um, okay, and you know these were regular operations that were ongoing. Uh, maybe and, just touch on that because I mean I can't say I'm familiar with that myself, and I, so I'd imagine many people wouldn't be. Yeah. So when uh, when the the war in Iraq, uh, when the Gulf War was completed, mm -hmm. uh, Saddam was basically given you know. I guess I would say, you know, the ability writ large to operate mm. within his within the center of the country. Uh, but then in the north where the Kurds were and then in the south um, where you had, uh, you know, a, 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 a Shia minority, um, there was basically an umbrella uh, of U.S. air power placed over those areas. And a lot of the targeting that occurred was um, telecommunications facilities. Mm -hmm. um, things of that nature. Uh, some air defense uh, was, was regularly hit. Uh, and so, yeah, there was Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch was this, this continuing bombing campaign right. of Iraq, very low scale, yeah. um, but, but still significant. And still and against then, Saddam and his forces, obviously, to, to keep right. him at bay to the north and, and, and south, obviously, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should he should he, you know, ever decide to again, you know, go forth and, and do evil things? Yeah. Um, but at that time, I was really, I really had completely transitioned over to to the Iraq account, and we had Desert Fox, um, which was, you know, a, a basically a, a kind of like a weekend 
thing around Thanksgiving in the States, mm. uh, which was part of the whole wag the dog issue with um, President mm. Clinton and, and his issues with Monica Lewinsky, mm. where, you know, he decided to go and, and bomb Iraq for a weekend. Mm. And I really began with that conflict to, you know, to start working on on better understanding Saddam Hussein, his security apparatus, um, the facilities, etc. And starting then, I, you know, was and, and my boss at the time, uh, he he left. And so I was promoted into, you know, very, very luckily, I guess I got mm. into a, you know, a hot account. Mm, yeah. And um, well, D, well, D account, I guess, at that time, right? I mean, at that time, yeah, it yeah. It really wasn't anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, I moved over to the Pentagon uh, and worked on the joint staff. Mm. And at that time, you know, I was going around as, as necessary, flying around the world when CIA would bring um, uh, defectors out and I would go and interview defectors and develop uh, what we called, I mean, it's a silly name, we call target jackets. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you, you basically have your, your targeting matrix of Mm -hmm. The building, what there is, what it's constructed of, who's there when, uh, you know, what time of what types of munitions are are um, most likely going to be used against mm. it or are recommended, and just basically preparing for a war that I I honestly never thought was was going to happen. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, but I was going around and and interviewing folks and trying to understand um, Saddam Hussein the. Special Security Organization, which was, you know, his highest leadership security folks, mm. um, kind of, I mean, uh, you know, just just the real knuckle dragger bad guys that you don't mm. want to get involved with. His son, Saddam's son, was actually uh, in charge of those. Right. Uh, the Iraqi Intelligence Service was on my list. Um, the Bath Party, um, various uh, government entities. Uh, and so, yeah, I went around uh, meeting with a lot of folks and developing this. And then as, uh, you know, post 9-11, uh, I was in the Pentagon on 9-11. And then the, immediately after 9-11, uh, I was called into my boss's office uh, on the joint staff. And he said to me, okay, I need you to go and, and sit down and meet with the main analyst for... Um, counter um uh i'm sorry uh what's it called um uh for counterterrorism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah my boss called me into the office and he said i want you to meet with the the counterterrorism uh head and i need you to put together a paper with her on what the linkage is between saddam hussein and 9-11 and al-qaeda yeah <laughs> and i'm just looking at him going okay i'm done there's no link you know, he's like, no, yeah. no, no, you, you really need to actually go and do research. And, and I explained, I'm like, listen, I've been following Saddam Hussein now for a number of years. Uh, you know, I can tell you where he's he's been, you know, mm. at, 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 at any at any moment. Uh, predicting where he's going to be is a little harder. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's really not not what not what you're going to do in Intel. But, you know, yeah. I could tell you a whole lot about him. And there's not only there's is there no relationship to Al Qaeda, but you know, they, they did not see eye to eye, let's say. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, I went and met with her. We, we spent about a week on it. We put together a white paper and, and it never went anywhere. And, uh, you know, the next thing I know, uh, things start moving. Obviously the conflict in Afghanistan was rolling yeah. and then there was this real big push for Iraq. And I was called in to brief Wolfowitz and Cheney and Rumsfeld and, wow. 
um, you know, provide information on, on Saddam and, and the leadership and whatnot and targeting issues. And it just became very, very clear to me that we were heading yeah, into war. Going. How yeah, do you feel yeah. about, how do you feel? I mean, even, even back then, I guess you, you made it quite clear that, you know, there was no links. Uh, now, you know, 20 years later, we can comfortably say that it was all a, a farce, really. Uh, how, do you, how did you feel back then and how do you feel now about that? I mean, it's a, that you were briefing some senior leaders. Uh, I, I guess you could read between the lines uh, even back then. How did that sit well, with you? I, I, I left for Human Rights Watch. You know, <laughs> right. I mean. Yeah, I, yeah. So, course. you know, how did it, how did I deal with it? You know, in, in, look, in 2002, uh, we were conducting the targeting. You know, so so. Uh, I, I, Hold as, on, this is a bit pre-invasion, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. so, so, let me let me just set the set the scene for you. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. So there's there's deliberate targeting and there's dynamic targeting. Mm-hmm. Okay, and deliberate targeting is when you you know take your take time to um, put together a prioritized list of targets to meet a commander's intent, and those targets will be attacked off of a joint target list in a phased conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in certain times uh, for certain effects. Mm. Uh, mm. And when I mean that, you know, you may need to drop a certain building before another because mm. it has a certain telecommunications part to it that you need taken out first, or mm. there's an individual that you need to, to have uh, have killed uh, at a certain time. So that's and when you say deliberate. phases of war, yeah, and when you say phases of war, as in you, you, with the actual advancing army, you might do, or military, you might do various uh, attacks uh, throughout those various phases, you know, whether it's the, you know, preliminary phase when you're kind of setting the scene, you might target particular things. And then as the troops are on the ground, you might target different things, again, in support of, as you said, the commander's intent to achieve an effect on the ground uh, to support the ultimate invasion that was going on, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's okay. precisely what we, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And in 2002, we were putting together that initial target list mm-hmm. where, that were being, you know, we were racking and stacking targets saying, okay, you know, when this, when the bubble goes off, these are, you know, the, so I I don't know, uh, out of the first, you know, few dozen targets, the vast majority of them were on my list because it was, you know, uh, other than, you know, a clearly air defense is going to go down and you're going to hit different radar installations and whatnot, but key leadership targets were right at the top of the list. And so we were doing deliberate targeting. We were going, Mm. we actually went to um, Shaw Air Force Base which is in South Carolina in the US mm. and sat down and you had DOD. Uh, so you had DIA people, you had mm. CIA, you had national security agency, um, you had UK, um, you had US air force Navy. So, I mean, just everybody, it was a mm. huge mass and, and, you know, you're going through the target list and they would put up, you know, an image of the target and we would have the dimpies, uh, which is desired mean point of impact, which is mm-hmm. the little X's on the target, which is where you want the bombs to go, right? Mm-hmm. The desired yeah. mean point of impact. Um, mm-hmm. And we worked through the, the, the deliberate targeting. And when we, when we had completed the deliberate targeting in, in 2002, we had uh, approximately 300 targets that were considered to be high collateral damage targets. And at okay. that time, at that time, high collateral damage was 30 civilians or more. So we, wow. for, for that, mm. things have changed. Mm, things yeah, have, yeah. have definitely changed, and I, and I can speak to that. But at the time, high collateral was considered to be 30 civilians or more. And for every target that we had over 30 civilians or more, 
we had to go to National Command Authority for their authorization. So that means either President Bush or Secretary Rumsfeld had to mm. personally sign off on that. And there is no way we were going to send them 300 targets. Mm. Mm. No way. Mm. So we worked with the, the weaponeers, uh, which are the people that determine the proper munition and munition settings uh, for the weapon. We changed certain parameters like time of day. You know, if you drop a bomb at mm -hmm. night, you're, you're less likely to kill civilians. We changed angle of attack uh, because the angle of attack is, can be very important because when the weapon impacts, the debris from the weapon is going to flow in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And that can have a, a, a great impact on, on civilian harm. So, you know, for example, there was one target that we struck that was across the street from a um, maternity hospital. Right. And we hit it with about 18,000 pounds of high explosives. Wow. And yeah, and and no one in the hospital. Uh, that's that's a number of that's a number of bombs, right? That's not that's that uh, is it was nine two thousand pound bombs. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. Uh, Jeez, nine nine two thousand uh, pound bombs. Yep. Ooh. Yeah. So you know we went through all of that, but that's that's the deliberate targeting phase. Hmm. So then the war kicks off, and I was not in support of it. Uh, to say mm. the least, I, I actually I remember the on on the, the eve of the of the conflict, I spoke to my uh, colleague uh, at CIA who was the the main leadership targeting person there, uh, and led their high value targeting team, and said, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, you know what I believe it was she said to me, we're about to do this, and I can't believe it, and mm. I said to her, I don't I don't know why. And we just had this conversation about just how, how absolutely unnecessary that this whole conflict was. And uh, at any rate. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. 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 No, I mean, even on the inside, there were just massive concerns and questions. But, you know, the policymakers made their decision and, and you know, you move forward. But I could not support the conflict. Uh, mm. I, I, I did not support the war in Iraq. And I was very interested in getting out. Mm. and finding uh, finding another job. And I was very lucky to be hired by Human Rights Watch. Mm. But the hiring process took quite a long time and they dragged their feet on it. And uh, they ended up offering me the position, you know, as the war was kicking off. And I said to them, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, if you want me, um, I'm, I'm, I want to come. I want to work for you. Mm. But you're going to have to wait until at least the main uh, combat operations are completed because I felt like I had a responsibility to the civilians on the ground, mm. to the pilots who were going to fly the missions, because, you know, if you're going to call restrikes in, you're putting someone's life at risk. Mm. Um, and I understood that. And, you know, look, maybe there's some hubris involved. Sure. But mm. I felt that they're just going to pull some, you know, warm body in. That's what the military mm. does, right? Yeah. You, you've got yeah. somebody, you, you need somebody, somebody leaves. We're just going to throw some, some, some warm body in and they're going to run it. Well, mm. you know, I felt like, look, nobody knows this target set like I do. Mm. And I'm going to fight for and fight against certain targets. And, and I, I thought back to um, uh, Radio Television Serbska. Mm -hmm. uh, back mm -hmm. when that was struck, I was actually part of the targeting team that argued against it. And we initially had it removed from the target list. Uh, and this was during the, the war in Kosovo in 99. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my team argued against it. Um, we presented our arguments to, to European command and they removed it from the target list. Uh, you know, it was a television station. It was civilian in nature. Uh, UCOM was very concerned with propaganda. Mm. Uh, but 
you know, we went to them, you know, we worked with the lawyers and, and, and there were a number of lawyers that were concerned that this was not a lawful target because it, it's civilian. Nature. civilian but, yeah. yeah. But some obviously so supported it. So we went at, at a different, in a different way. And we explained that, listen, if you take RTS down, uh, they're just going to reconstitute their capabilities within about 72 hours. And I was quite amazed that we were wrong. Uh, they reconstituted in about eight hours. <laughs> and, uh, you know, R RTS was hit about a week after uh, we had it taken off the target list. And so it was one of those things where, you know, you do the best you can. And so that was my thinking going into, into the Iraq conflict. You know, I want to I wanna be there because I'm going to fight for some of these these targets and, and and fight against others and you need to have you know that dissenting voice in and so i stayed there up until after the saddam statue fell mm. and we were working you know incredibly long hours we had cots in the building sleeping in in the the pentagon and folks sleeping at cia and, and nsa and whatnot and um making target recommendations and i i changed well, actually, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. The, the shift from deliberate targeting to dynamic targeting. Mm, mm. So dynamic targeting, now this is the phase where things are moving quickly. And yeah. yes, you may have your deliberate target, you know, let's say some intelligence center or you know, Saddam's palace. But once the bubble goes up, those people all move somewhere. Yeah. And so they're, they become dynamic targets because they're mobile. And so you're tracking them live and you're trying yeah. to find them and, and, and engage them. And I remember I was, uh, so my, my, um, my daughter, Emily was born, uh, the week before the war and I was home. I told my boss, I said, listen, I got to take some paternity leave. And he yeah. thought I was absolutely nuts. <laughs> and I said to him, listen, it's fine. The war is not scheduled until Saturday. So let me take the week. Uh, I'll come in on Friday night. We'll be ready to go. That sentence, the war is not scheduled till Saturday. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah. And it came, well, it, it actually, it bit me in the ass mm. because then I got a phone call. I think it was a Wednesday when the war started. <laughs> I got a call. I'm, I, you know, I'm sure somebody will fact check me. I think it was a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a phone call and it was my boss. And he just says, come in right now. And just... I, I was frozen. I thought, oh, crap. Right. And, you know, I went to my wife. I said, I have to go into the Pentagon right now. And she just looked at me. She said, the war is starting. I said, don't say anything to anyone. <laughs> and oh, I, got in, I got in my car and I'm driving to the Pentagon up um, the George Washington Parkway. And as I'm going, I'm listening to the radio. And at one point they, they break in and they go, you know, special news bulletin, uh, war in Iraq. And they start describing this attack. And I'm like, holy shit, what, what are mm. we bombing? You know, I know mm. all the targets. What are we bombing? And I'm listening and I'm thinking that sounds just like the Jadria Peninsula, which is just south of the presidential palace. And I'm going through my head, like going through all the targets on Jadria Peninsula. I'm like, mm. why would we hit Jadria Peninsula? I'm like, you know, Saddam's kids' palaces are there mm. and they have a family compound. And I'm thinking, why would we hit this? And then they're talking about, oh, and, and, and you know, there was Saddam was targeted and, um, you know, there was a bunker. And I'm thinking to myself, there's, there's no bunker. Mm. You know? and I, and I, so I get into the Pentagon 
and I rushed down uh, into, and I, so I was working in uh, the NIMJIC, which mm -hmm. is the National Military Joint Intelligence Center. So right. the way it works is, you know, the, the two is the intel side mm -hmm. and the three is the operational side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two is the the Nimjik is right next to the to the tank, which is what, what, what the nickname for the for the the three was for the right. operations guys. Right. And I went into the two, which was you know just like buried in the building where it, it's 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 air gapped because of all the yeah. intelligence stuff that you've yeah. got and whatnot, and and you know and we're 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 underground. And I go down and I go into my boss. I'm like, what did we hit? And he said, we, we hit Dora Farm. And that changed the war for me because now all of a sudden I had to remove a number of targets off of the JTL, which is a joint right. target list. Mm. Because if Saddam is dead, you know, you don't want to hit. The war is different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the yeah. war is completely yeah. different. You know, yeah. there are buildings that if you take them down, you're just going to have to rebuild them. Mm. Mm. So the war changed dramatically. And at that point, I switched completely to dynamic targeting and we were going after Saddam Hussein. And so my my group, uh, the high value targeting cell, uh, there was the high value targeting cell in the Pentagon. You had one at NSA, one at CIA and one at uh, CENTCOM forward, which was in Doha. Mm. And they were actually the decision makers. We were providing targeting recommendations mm -hmm. and we were doing VTCs at the time, video teleconferences, mm -hmm. you know, two a days and on the phone all the time. And, and, uh, looking at satellite imagery and blue force tracker, which tells you where forces are and yeah. trying to, you know, obviously listen into comms for, from the enemy and whatnot and, and try to understand where Saddam was. And we ended up taking 50 shots at Saddam Hussein. Wow. From, from wow. the time. Yeah. From um, Dora farm up until, gosh, it was about, I don't know. Was it like April 7th, something like that. And mm. uh, so a fairly short time period, we took 50 shots at him and uh, yeah, we only killed civilians. Oh, so not not there was not a single target was was killed uh, that that we were trying to hit and you know I'm looking at the you know the famous deck of cards right which has yeah. Saddam and his sons and all these other people on it and every day I you know I'm I'm getting up 4 a.m. in the building to go in and, and brief the two which is the general who's in charge of intel mm. who's then going to go in and brief Rumsfeld mm. and every day he's asking me did you get anybody on the, on the blacklist? Yeah. Cause you know, that's what we call it. We call it the blacklist and um, you know, those, the, the leadership for, for Iraq. And it was something like the second weekend we finally had somebody and he was so down the totem pole and it was actually the Marines who killed them or the army who killed them in some, you know, armored pitched battle. And, and we right. had nothing to do with it. And um, at any rate, you know, it was a real lesson in this targeting from afar and and thinking that you have all of the answers mm. and in fact you have very few answers and if any at all and i then transitioned uh once the once the statue fell i i went in the next day i planned uh i planned my last you know bombing mission made made target recommendations uh worked with the with the weaponeers and the next day i flew to new york uh, went to Human Rights Watch. They put me on a plane to Kuwait. <laughs> I got to Kuwait, met my my new colleagues, and got into a car and drove into Iraq. And wow. uh, a couple days later, I kid you not, I was standing in a crater uh, that I had helped plan, and I was talking to the sole survivor of uh, 
two families, about 19 people killed. Uh, uh, non-combatants, civilians. Civilians, yeah. It was a doctor. Oh. And, and you had been in charge of that operation, you, what, weeks before? I had been, I had or, been or on the providing top. target pack. I know? had been tar- providing target recommendations for it. And, you know, at the time it looked, it looked good. The intel mm. looked good. And mm. I actually remember, I watched the actual strike. Uh, it was in Basra, uh, which later, which was UK territory. Mm. Um, it was in Basra and we were attacking uh, Chemical Ali, mm. uh, who was, you know, Saddam's cousin. And look, no, no doubt war criminal. Yeah. You know, yeah. he had been in charge of gassing the Kurds back in 1988 in the Anfal campaign, had a lot of blood on his hands. And, you know, we th- we thought that he was there and he wasn't. Mm. And uh, a number of, you know, and, and the fellow who survived is this, you know, old man, maybe in his 70s. And I remember when I was speaking to him, his his I just couldn't stop looking at his hands Mm. because they were just gnarled and his fingernails were worn down and bloodied. And I mean, this is a week later. Mm. Um, And he had been digging out the body of his son and his grandchildren. And, and it was utterly heartbreaking. Mm. I can't even imagine what, I I mean, obviously the sheer horror that he has experienced as somebody who's innocent. That's just the, 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 yeah, words can't just, yeah, imagine what he has felt when his entire family, you said, was basically deleted yeah. uh, of this. Uh, 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 we will touch on that because the, the, those kind of the impact of the bombs uh, are definitely something I'd really like to uh, touch on. But just before we get to that, um, Something that just doesn't that that I've been wanting to understand for years now, as a member of the military myself, and somebody who has had some uh, cursory exposure to the targeting process, uh, at least in the support to the um, intelligence piece, um, as as a collector, um, fifty attempts uh, at one target, uh, zero out of fifty success. I mean, that's that that's an incredible, uh, incredibly poor strike rate. How does the targeting process work and what contributed to such an abysmal picture, really, of zero out of 50? How, how do we get to that? Given everything that, you know, given everything, the, the might of the, and in this case, particularly the US military. Uh, now, of course, you know, uh, Australia kind of, uh, we, we rode your coattails of many of these things. Um, but how do we, how, how does that happen? So I want to look at it not as, the attacks on Saddam, but mm-hmm. you know, let's let's look at at targeting <clears throat> of of leadership, just writ large. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you know, we we started off talking about Slobodan Milosevic. Mm. You know, the the U.S. Bom- NATO bombed his home, mm. and for all the U.S. politicians saying, "Oh, we're just hitting a building, we're not trying to kill him," you know, that's nonsense, right? We're trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we went after um, Osama bin Laden how many times? with with drones and, and for with, how many years not you know, for how many yeah. years right <clears throat> yeah. and and couldn't do it we went into iraq uh we took the country over and we still couldn't find these fellows and we still were bombing them we're in afghanistan for how many years going after uh you know mullah omar and you know the number two of al-qaeda was killed every other week yeah. and you know you, you look at what's gone on in uh in syria 
uh, some of the targeting problems that have happened there. And it's, it, it, I think it goes to show that there are some systemic problems within the targeting cycle that really need to be addressed. Mm. And it's something that we at PAX and a lot of other NGOs are working very closely right now with the, the US Pentagon and with some of the NATO allies to try to address. As I think they recognize, particularly post the Kabul airstrike, mm. where you know the U.S. Uh, the final you know day, yeah. the final strike was you know ten civilians were killed, uh, and they were completely not involved. And the U.S. comes out with this nonsensical statement that it was a righteous strike. And I think it goes to show the basic difficulty of hunting human beings from thirty thousand feet. And you really do not have a conception of what's going on on the ground and the lack of post-strike uh, investigation and how that feeds into this, you know, self-licking ice cream cone where mm -hmm. you think, you know, what's going on. You set up a, 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 a target package, you go in, you, you prosecute the, the target, you, you, you drop a weapon, you kill them and you, 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 you don't, you don't actually kill the person or or whatever it is that you're that you're aiming for and you just do it again and you just do it again and there's never you know trying to trying to learn from it or or what did we go wrong do, let's let's do an investigation into the civilian harm aspect and and so it just keeps eating up on itself and and another thing too is i mean i'm 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 guilty as anybody else I, I'm sitting here listening to the language that I'm using. Mm. You know, we're talking about prosecuting a target. We're yeah. talking about, you know, um, targeting something. You talk about collateral damage. I mean, these are human beings. They're not collateral yeah. damage. Yeah. And so a lot of the language built around all of this really reinforces um, a, a number of the systemic problems that, that exist in targeting. And it, it creates a system in which you, you really have confirmation bias. And I think that's one of the big problems is that, you're looking for a target. And so you're going to find a target. You know, if, if, you know, it's very cliche, but if every problem is a nail, you know, you're going to bring out the hammer. And, uh, and I think that, that it's really past time for us to make some changes. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can certainly uh, agree with that just from my own uh, experiences as well. I mean, it's a, when you're part of the military machine, uh, it's very difficult. I mean, you're part of a tribe that is, uh, you know, carrying a flag and it's uh, fighting a righteous war uh, and you're doing your best. And the motivations, uh, they can slip somewhat because you then you've got objectives to achieve. You've got, uh, uh, you know, you've got specific missions, despite the fact that those missions might actually be very murky and uncertain, uh, as we well know, with, you know, Kerbal, uh, the intelligence <laughs> that, that, that ultimately shaped that entire conflict uh, in Iraq. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, the irony of the, of the, of, <laughs> of the code name of the source. Uh, and I suspect you, I suspect a lot of the... I, I know Kerbal very well. Okay. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your experience, uh, because that's, I, a, I mean... I, I, I really can't get story. into it. Right. Uh, you know, Cur Cur Curveball was... Uh, a source that uh, that that informed a lot of the U.S. decision making and targeting, and you know, let, let's just say that that in the beginning of the Iraq conflict, uh, Ahmed Chalabi, who was the individual running the Iraqi National Congress, which was kind of this um, you know um, dissident group fighting, you know, supposedly fighting against Saddam, uh, and and really using his connections with the U.S. government to push forward his agenda 
and to 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 really push the, the war forward. They were feeding the U.S. intelligence community and policymakers what folks wanted to hear. Yeah, and I, I think that that informed an awful lot of not only the targets but the decision making, and yeah. and it's 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 very unfortunate, and it 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 you know led into a lot of the things that Colin Powell said at the UN when he mm. was making his you know his plea his pitched mm. plea to the world here is the intelligence Iraq has weapons of mass destruction this is how we know and I can't, you know I, I mean I'm watching this and I'm sitting in in the Pentagon and I'm I'm looking at my friends who who work the the WMD cell and I'm mm. like do you guys really have this <laughs> and they're like well, I don't know what the hell he's talking about wow you know so there is there's an awful lot of disconnect and I, there's also an awful lot of well, he's he must know something we don't know, mm. you know, because even in the intelligence community, yeah, maybe it's a know, different compartment or whatever. There's yeah. compartments, right? Yeah. Things are compartmentalized. Yeah. I mean, I had a TSSCI, which is mm. top secret sensitive compartmentalized information. And it means mm. that if I don't need to know, I'm not going to find out. And if That's somebody right. else doesn't need to know something that I have, they're not going to find out. And uh, you know, so you're you're sitting there thinking, wow, well, okay, these are, you know, the president, the vice president, secretary of state, you name it, uh, tenant. I briefed tenant. I can't tell you how many times I briefed tenant. Wow. And you you think, well, he's got to know something I don't know because, you know, he's it's the director tenet. of central yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's he's right. tenant. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm a nobody. I'm an analyst, right? Yeah. That's just, yeah, I can't just stop shaking my head at that because, I mean, the, the, the consequences of those decisions are so grave and it seems as though they were made in, well, yeah, in absence of credible information. And those who made them obviously must have known that, uh, that the information was incredible because I, I, I find it hard to believe that the entire machinery and, like you're saying, even the actual WMD people responsible to provide the intelligence uh, on those very weapons had no idea what's going on. Is this a question of poor incentives? What what was now looking back years? What, what do you put it down to? I mean, what what was the motivation behind the war in Iraq, and 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 how did these, you know, poor incentives uh, uh, shape and influence the actual war? Well, I believe that the the U.S. government at the time had already made a decision that they mm. were going to you know remove Saddam Hussein. There was going to be a regime change for for what for a variety of reasons. Mm. Um, and I think many of them did believe that the U.S. and and allied forces would be welcomed, you know, with you know people with palm fronds and yeah. and thanks and cheers and whatnot. And uh, and and they were all they were all painfully wrong. I mean, look, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the problems in targeting and and how things go. You know, I've been doing this now since '97, right? Mm -hmm. And you just look at that. I've been involved in the wars in so in Kosovo, Iraq, um, Afghanistan, a number of conflicts well, between the Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza, um, the war between uh, Israel and Lebanon uh, in in uh, was that two thousand six or was it two thousand eight? God, you can't even you know these things happen so often now. The <laughs> the two thousand eight conflict between Russia and Georgia. Uh, the Libya conflict uh, with NATO. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, how many wars can we possibly be fighting in 20 years? And it's mm. just, it's just really shocking to me and awful. And now we sit here and we're looking at, you know, Russian forces uh, on, on the yeah, border of Ukraine border of, and actually yeah. even within Ukraine's border, you know, having taken over Crimea and the Donetsk area. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's just this, this never ending pain cycle. Yeah. I, I recently interviewed uh, Samuel Moyne, uh, whose name you might've heard. Uh, he wrote the book, Humane, uh, this, uh, how the United States abandoned peace and reinvented war. And one of the things in, in his thesis and, and quite convincing, I must say, the book is exceptional is that this, and he actually talks about Human Rights Watch in the book uh, as, as potentially a, a, a side effect of this, um, this kind of humanizing of war over the past, well, maybe century, uh, and how we've, uh, you know, like you even mentioned, the language of precision weapons or precision strikes is a rather surgical terminology. And as these weapons are becoming more and more precise and more and more accurate, it becomes a lot easier to wage what he rightly, I think, you know, labels the forever war, uh, because it's it is it's far more palatable to sell to the domestic audience. Hey, we have these precision weapons; we can hit the window that we want to hit. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I mean, or how do you feel about that thesis, especially as somebody who has seen all of these conflicts over these what now twenty five years? Um, what's your thoughts? Well, I think it's really interesting when you consider the development of the human rights movement worldwide in relation to that. Yeah. You know, you look at, for example, a human rights watch, which came about, came up about as an organization, you know, dedicated to fighting for human rights in Russia against people who are being held incommunicado, uh, you know, in, in some, in some prison somewhere in Siberia or, you know, and, and has, has grown, to be an organization that really started it with the war in Afghanistan for the first time for a human rights organization to conduct what they called a uh, humanitarian battle damage assessment, mm. going into a conflict zone, researching the actual strikes, researching where it was hit, what weapon hit it, identifying the perpetrator, linking that perpetrator to, to the strike, and then putting out you know, very detailed reporting on, on war crimes. Right. Yeah. And, and information that then, you know, put, then supports, you know, war crime investigations by the U.N., et cetera. You look at Amnesty International, which began as an organization dedicated to people who are you know, being held by governments uh, as political prisoners. And now Amnesty International has, you know, for example, Brian Kastner, who is, you know, former military and is, you know, their their researcher on the ground who goes into conflict zones. And does the same thing that mm. the, the that you know I used to do at Human Rights Watch, you know, digging up bombs and linking it to to the the targeters. You now have organizations that have become created in the last twenty years, such as Air Wars, which is an organization, an NGO dedicated to uh, you know determining how, where, and why civilians are harmed in airstrikes, and providing that information to militaries so that they can you know validate their targets and 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 fight for. The victims on the ground and the recognition of those civilians killed. You look at civilians in conflict, Civic, which is a, an organization that was mm. started by a, a dear friend of mine, Marla Ruzica, who went to Afghanistan in 2001 and recognized that civilians were not were being harmed, but not being taken care of by militaries. And mm. so in Iraq, then she began uh, creating a system in which amends became something that militaries began to do. And that was a regular thing that that pretty much all of the Western militaries do when someone is harmed, they provide some sort of amends, whether mm. it's, you know, economic compensation or whatnot. So 
you have an entire human rights movement that has mm-hmm. grown from 20 years of war. You know, you have organizations that have changed because of the way that wars are fought. And it's it's amazing to me that we're living in a world right now where, you know, on the one side, you have militaries going in and fighting. You have human rights organizations that are going in and investigating. And then the two realize, you know, hey, you know, may, you know, maybe there's a lot of mistrust and whatnot, but if at times we can come together and 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 provide each other some information, whether it's you know lessons learned or you have uh, you know you you have uh, best practices, um, you know we can perhaps minimize uh, the civilian harm. And then you know there is the question, as as raised in the book that you put forth, does that make wars more palatable? Mm. You know, does it make it easier because now we're having fewer people killed? Um, and so, you know, you, you have this, this, this issue where, you know, people look at, and now we're talking drone strikes, right? Where the, the strike in, in Afghanistan, where everyone always thinks, oh, it's, it's so precise, it's, it, it, it limits civilian harm, but it's only as good as the intelligence that backs it up. And if you don't know what you're aiming at, then you're going to, you're going to kill people that, yeah. you know, you're going to kill innocents. And, and that's, that's, it's awful. It's it's really awful. And I've seen it and I've worked on the ground for the United Nations conducting war crimes investigations. I've done it in Afghanistan, in Syria and in in Libya. Mm. And it's amazing to me. Then you shift from a human rights organization, then work for the UN and do the research, link up and absolutely positively identify, you know, a perpetrator to a, a, a civilian casualty issue, put reports out. And then, you know, the Security Council does not only nothing, but they protect the perpetrators. You know, you've got the, the, the Russians veto any action that we've got going on for, for Syria, for example. Right. And, and, and so it's 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 just a, a really hard situation where you've got a lot of very dedicated war crime investigators and, and human rights officers in the U.N. system and in NGOs. Um, you know, trying to make things better and trying to work with the military. And some are more open to it than others. Mm. And of course, the the nature of those conflicts will dictate who potentially is, uh, you know, to be called guilty or not. Uh, at this stage, I don't I don't think any uh, Western militaries have been uh, uh, successfully prosecuted for any kind of uh, war crimes uh, internationally, uh, to my knowledge, at least. No, no. I mean, you've got some of the 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 internal investigations. You've got mm. you know the Operation Burnham from New Zealand. You've got the Brereton report, of course, for Australia. For Australia yeah. You know. I mean, in the United States, we've had um, instances of individuals going to, to jail. You had Clint Lawrence, uh, who, who, who killed Afghans. Um, you had the, the Blackwater guys in, in, mm. um, in, in, in Iraq. Uh, but then, you know, we, we then had a, a U.S. president that pardoned war criminals. So mm. I, I, I really don't want to get yeah. No, actually, uh, but, but, yeah. uh, and I mean, the whole kind of piece of war crimes is something I discuss quite often in the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced that focusing on individual soldiers or individual acts is, is almost a misnomer because the environment shapes what you do. And, and you know, this is you know, much better than I do. One becomes very desensitized to war uh, the more war one is exposed to. Uh, and some of these soldiers have been deployed beyond what uh, they should have been, and they had been exposed to beyond what human beings should be, uh, and all of these actions led to uh, various uh, incidents. Which is, which is not to say that they shouldn't be prosecuted or investigated, uh, but I think we need to uh, realize that the upstream causes of our decisions to go to war 
uh, is ultimately what, what we're talking about here. And, and and that's what I think Samuel Moyne's book really touches on because he's, you know, all this focus in the international humanitarian law and organisations is the kind of post-HR, post-decision point, we're going to war. Uh, but it's this decision to go to war that somehow we don't really explore. Our leaders, our politicians are left off the hook completely. We don't hold them accountable uh, for, you know, uh, you know, just war uh, doctrine, uh, which we also uh, embrace in Western militaries. We certainly don't hold them accountable uh, anywhere, in fact, at all. Um, you know, it's with, with complete impunity. Uh, you know, no one's ever going to drag uh, George Bush uh, into a court and say, uh, hey, you know, what were the reasons that you actually decided to go uh, launch that conflict? Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, the, the, the lack of accountability really reinforces this sense of, of, of impunity. And, mm. and, and that's a core problem that we see in, in the human rights community. Yeah. And I think it's a good, good point. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm, we, we, I haven't even gone down half the page of my, <laughs> my questions uh, that I really want to get to. Uh, and we've nearly been going for an hour. So please, an, please. Yeah. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, if I'm going no, it's, yeah. not at all. I, I was just going to say it's an amazing conversation because my eyes are just, you know, you're, you're really peeling back the curtains and, and I think that's, uh, that's really important, but I really want to uh, touch on, on how is collateral damage, uh, a uh, collateral damage estimate calculated, right? Because you mentioned at the start, uh, and I know it's changed uh, since, and, and, and I really want to get to that. Um, but, you know, back in those days, the cutoff was 30 uh, when it had to be bumped up higher to get approval. So just to put that in context, that's 30 civilians, 30 human beings who are in no shape or form involved in the war. Uh, that was the the high watermark, so to speak, uh, of when it had to be uh, you know, if, if 30 or more are going to die, it had to be pushed up uh, higher. So maybe just touch on how you actually worked out the, the CDE, collateral damage estimate, um, and, and how that's now changed. I know that you've done some recent work with Pentagon that maybe it's, uh, it's, it's, it's timely to address as well. Yeah, so uh, collateral damage estimation is, is, is very much um, you know, a science. Uh, you have engineers who will look at a facility, for example, look at the, the building, how it's constructed. What is it constructed of? What is the earth made of? You know, do you have mm -hmm. hard packed earth? Do you have sandy earth? Um, you know, what, how much glass is in the building? Um, what is the construction like? Where do people, you know, where are people in the building in relation to the actual places where the weapons are going to impact? What kind of weapons are you going to use? How, how large are they? What is the type of fusing mm. are you going to set it to to explode on contact or are you going to set it to explode underground and you know you make these changes because these decisions because they're going to affect how the weapon operates and and then the effects that 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 occur so for example if a munition explodes on impact uh you're going to have you know widespread surface damage yeah. but you may you may want that you know depending on the effect that you're requiring but if you explode the weapon underground subterranean you know put a i don't know a four or eight millisecond um mm -hmm. you know delay, delay on it mm -hmm. then the building is going to basically implode and collapse upon itself now mm -hmm. air, that's going to completely destroy the building and anyone inside but you know the surrounding area you you're very likely to have buildings that are across the street from it that don't even have broken glass Right. So, you know, like there the are maternity of, hospital example, you like the maternity yeah. hospital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so you have these engineers that look at all of these physical features of the building. They take historical population data. 
to understand where and when people are going to be in an area. Um, and, you know, honestly, for some countries, it's pretty good. And for some, it's not that good. Like, mm. I remember when we were working Iraq, you know, I mean, the last Iraqi census had been, you know, like, like a decade or 20 years prior yeah. to the conflict. And so you're, you're, you're sitting there going, okay, how, how useful are, are mm. these numbers? But at any rate, uh, they'll then do an, an engineering model of the building. And it's a, you know, it, it really is, it's a visual look at it with concentric circles of varying mm -hmm. colors from, you know, red to yellow, orange and yellow and out. And you're looking at varying levels of damage, you know, everything from complete in, in instantaneous destruction mm -hmm. to at a certain distance, you know, you maybe you have eardrum rupture. Yeah. Um, and then you're determining at a certain time of day, how many people are going to be here. So what are, you know, what are the expected civilian casualties? And, and we had a very high number. We had 30 uh, during the Iraq conflict for, for high collateral targets. Uh, and just so, so folks know, uh, we, we worked those down from the 300 to 30. Oh, we wow. eventually provided uh, Bush and, and Rumsfeld with a list of 30 high collateral targets for Iraq. And 29 of those were struck. One was never struck. It still stands today. Wow. Um, but you know, you think of all of those buildings. That's that's thirty people per building, right? So that's you know, and then you think about all the different bombs dropped in in the conflict, and, and you're you're talking about high potential. Now, you shift to Afghanistan during the the um, Obama administration, and they changed to a a level zero. Uh, so there, you know, and and for NATO, the idea was if any weapon is going to uh, to hit a target and we believe a single civilian is going to be killed, then that has to go to a higher level of authority for that right. to be checked off. Right. Okay. So it, 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 you know, there were dramatic changes in the authorizations that had to happen uh, for targeting. Now, this changed fairly dramatically when President Trump came in. Uh, and if you look at um, civilian casualty issues for Afghanistan, uh, you know, the years that, that he was president, the, the numbers are the highest ever recorded mm. um, as far as civilians killed by airstrikes. Um, yeah. But I, I think that there's, there's a, a lesson there. So let's, let's just try to understand. Um, so what in my, in my business, what we call civilian harm mitigation. So civilian harm mitigation are the, the, the tactics, techniques, and procedures mm -hmm. that a military can take to minimize civilian harm. Yeah. There's a number of things that they can do to, to reduce the risks. And in Afghanistan, and it was really born by, by the Afghan war uh, and, and by NATO in the 2007 to 2008 timeframes. I, I went to Afghanistan in 2008 after there'd been a number of, of very high, uh, high deaths, uh, airstrikes where a number of civilians were killed. And I met with NATO and, and tried to understand why this was happening yeah, and, uh, you know, put together a report for human rights watch and simultaneously quite interesting the the department of defense and NATO was doing the same thing. They were for the right. first time, you know, you know and, and 2008 was really the first time they started to count civilian deaths in, in Afghanistan, but as far <laughs> as NATO, NATO goes, yeah, it was 2008. Yeah. And so, they determined that, yeah, you know, so, so there are a number of things that, that they were doing that were leading to, to high civilian casualties. And they began to apply these civilian harm mitigation procedures to, to, to drop those down. So just to give you an idea. So in 2008, um, there were, 
552 civilians killed in Afghanistan mm -hmm. by, by NATO bombs. They began to implement the changes. By 2010, there were 171 killed. Hmm. Uh, so we had, you know, uh, somewhere of a 60% drop yeah. in civilian casualties from that. And the numbers continued to stay around 100 after that, all throughout uh, the conflict while, while NATO was there, because they were taking far more precautions than they had ever taken before. Right. Then, you know, you have a situation where President Trump comes in and and then in 2019, for example, we have 700 civilians killed by airstrikes, which was the single highest ever, uh, because he removed a lot of those uh, restrictions. Yeah. And I think an important lesson here uh, is that these procedures help. Yeah. You know, there are things that militaries can do that can minimize civilian harm. They can they can minimize the number of the, of civilians that are going to be killed. And if you implement those procedures, it, it will have a positive effect. And if you remove, remove them, you're, you're going to have a, a negative effect. And so, you know, I think the, the lesson there is, and at least for PACs, for, mm. from, for my organization, the lesson there is to engage with the military and attempt to work with them to yeah. make changes is, is one choice that we have made. Some organizations don't do that. You know, they would they 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 name and shame, or they fight against mm. uh, the military. But we've decided it, it's 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 in in our interest. It's in the military's interest. It's in you know uh, in, in all of our interest to work together towards you know improving uh, how civilians fare in yeah. in conflict. And so you know this is something we've worked with them. And there was a, a Dutch airstrike in uh 2014 i believe it was 2014 2014 2015 uh in hawija in iraq mm -hmm. single bomb and you know you think about all these thousands of bombs yeah. that, that drop in conflict how many people die single bomb 70 civilians killed and wow the yeah. amazing thing about that is the long-term effects and i think that's something that people don't often think about you know we say okay this number of civilians were killed but you don't think about, okay, how many breadwinners were killed? And now that mm. family has no income. You know, how many jobs are destroyed because, mm. you know, somebody's workshop is gone. Um, the, the infrastructure is destroyed. So we don't have water. We don't have sewage. That's going to increase cholera and other potential, you know, long-term effects. You don't have access to healthcare. So for example, in Hawija, uh, if people need to get uh, dialysis or, um, you know, cancer, care. They need to go all the way to your bill, which is over an hour away yeah. on a good day. And the reality is now you have so many checkpoints, you know, it takes a whole day. So there are all of these long-term effects and you have displacement. So yeah. when, when a weapon hits and uh, the effects go far beyond just that civilian death, right? And so we're working with these, or these military. So we've worked with the Dutch military now and push them to implement changes because they have never in their history, you know, put out um, the kind of detailed reporting on civilian casualties to try to, um, it, to educate the Dutch public on what's being done in their name. Yeah. And we're working with them to try to make change to implement changes, but, you know, perhaps more, uh, uh, more um, timely right now is we're working with the, with the U S military. Mm -hmm. uh, with with the Pentagon and and there is a, a consortium of NGOs, and we have been um, providing DoD uh, with a number of changes that that we believe they need to make. Things that er everything from 
actually creating a, a, an office in the Pentagon that deals with civilian casualties because they've, they've never prioritized civilian yeah. harm. The U.S. military has never prioritized civilian harm ever. Um, so everything from, from doing that uh, all the way to, you know, more in the weed things about, you know, cer- certain changes to collateral damage assessments, yeah. changes to how they do amends and whatnot. And, and using people like myself and, and others in our organizations that have that experience working in or with the military uh, so that we can provide them with the granular level of, of detail that they need for changes. And what I find quite amazing is it was going quite well. Uh, so the Pentagon was was preparing to put out what's called a DOTI, uh, mm-hmm. Department of Defense Instruction. Right. And it was going to be the very first policy ever issued on um, civilian harm and civilian casualties. So, you know, it's, I, I mean, it's quite shocking to me that the U.S. military has never had a military-wide yeah. policy on civilian casualties. Yeah. You know, they leave it up to the combatant commands. So CENTCOM, for example, mm-hmm. or AFRICOM, you know, they deal with it as they see fit within their own area of responsibility. Mm. Okay. But there's no overarching standard. Mm. And so we've been working with DOD to create this standard. They finished putting it together and it was supposed to come out right before the airstrike happened in Kabul. <laughs> Unfortunately, the policy didn't come now. Would that policy have made a change and 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 save those people's lives? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But then they slow rolled it, and I think there was a, a, a quite a bit of consternation in the Pentagon about this policy. Is it good enough? You know, uh, I mean, I have not seen it yet, um, but you know, we've been told that it doesn't necessarily have everything that the NGOs have asked for. Which you know, I mean, I'm not surprised. It's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It, it never will. But <clears throat> what does it have? And, you know, we've been pushing them to, to put it out because we said, look, yeah, are we going to complain? Sure. You know, uh, are we going to say it's not adequate? Probably. Mm. But put it out so at least we can see what it does so that it can make changes so that hopefully, you know, whatever conflicts you're fighting right now, people are going to be better protected. Mm. And then we can work with you to improve it. I think that's really what's very important here. Let's mm. make those changes. And I think it, it all comes down to a basic um, decision. And, and I remember when I was being interviewed by Ken Roth, who's the, the executive director at Human Rights Watch. Mm-hmm. And I was being interviewed by him. And you know, he said to me you know, some, something along the lines of, you know, look, Mark, you know, we make a decision. There, there, there are two ways to look at international humanitarian law, right? The, the laws of armed conflict. There is the, the should we be going to war? Yeah. And there is the conduct of war. And he said, you know, we leave the should we be going to war to others? Mm-hmm. And we deal with the conduct of war, mm-hmm. you know, the conduct of hostilities. And I, I really took that on. And I, I think my career has really been a path of taking on the conduct of hostilities and trying to work with militaries to, you know, improve ch- and make changes in how they, they conduct operations to improve civilian protection. Yeah. One question that keeps bugging me is um, is the fact that we actually are able to put a number, regardless, I mean, back in the day it was 30, you know, now it might be five, it might be whatever, it might be three. Um, the, the, the moral and ethical imperative of that, that we are quite openly saying that, well, we're quite openly acknowledging that, of course, not all lives are worth the same. Um, which is something that, you know, is part of our Western narrative is, you know, everybody's, everybody's voice matters, everybody's person matters. Uh, 
but that really goes against it when we comfortably can say that to kill this high value target whoever that might be we're willing to trade 30 innocents and i know it's a it's a conundrum because the military can't i mean what what do you do i mean you have to fight a war but to what extent do you think we're we're really going to the nth degree uh, to protect those who are innocent uh, particularly when we're talking about what we mentioned before, you know, where the, where the war machine is is rolling um, and and you have numbers that you, hey, once I've met this number, it's fine. I can drop a bomb. Uh, you know, once I bring it down to, you know, this many civilians, I can drop the bomb. Um, and it becomes a, a, a benchmark. Well, it, it's a hurdle to jump over to drop a bomb as opposed to, realizing that these are human beings who have absolutely nothing to do with and they're victims already yeah no already. that's a great that's a great question yeah i i think the, the the first thing we need to do is look at how the international system was created uh, mm. with the geneva conventions you know states got together and 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 created these you know laws of armed conflict Mm. Uh, you know, it, which is, which, you know, human rights organizations, we call international humanitarian law and, yeah. and the military cause, cause law of armed conflict and decided that, Hey, you know, killing civilians is legal. It is lawful. And, and, and the vast, you know, I've done war crime investigations for a long time mm. and the vast majority of all the incidents that I've investigated have been lawful. Yeah. It is lawful to kill civilians in war. And I think most people don't realize that. Yeah. All right. It is yeah. unlawful to directly target civilians is unlawful to purposefully kill civilians. And, mm. you know, there, there are people who are in, in prison today because of that. You know, you yeah. just had the, the case in Germany where using universal jurisdiction, uh, the Germans have successfully put a number of Syrians in prison for, for yeah. doing just those things for, yeah. for, for targeting civilians. But, you know, the international community has decided that, yes, uh, killing civilians is lawful, but not 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 directly targeting them and so you have to go through the steps and see you know so in in in, in the law we look at it and say okay uh you have distinction and proportionality right so mm -hmm. distinction means you know i i can only i have to target a distinct military object i can't target a civilian object mm -hmm. and proportionality means that you know whatever gain that i get from this attack cannot out cannot be outweighed by the civilian harm yeah Right, so civilian harm can outweigh that. It's highly subjective in itself, right? Incredibly yeah. subjective, yeah. and you yeah. know, I, 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 I give it up to the JAGs, the the, the military lawyers mm. who who have to make these decisions. But you know, the issue of are we protecting the innocents? I mean, I think the answer is clearly no. Mm. You know, I mean, just look at the numbers. Look at you know every day in 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 Syria when you have the Russian and Syrian militaries directly yeah. targeting hospitals, you know, look yeah. at, you know, what, what the U S did in, in Afghanistan, look at, you know, a myriad number of issues. Are we, have we chosen to protect civilians? No, we haven't. I mean, the United States has never prioritized, um, As you, uh, said, yeah. the, you know, uh, civilian protection. And, mm. and, and this is, these are the decisions that our policymakers have made and, and, yeah. and, you know, our population support. Yeah. Just to now maybe pivot to one of the points you've mentioned already, that's drones. And, and I really want to, I found it interesting, you mentioned Obama, uh, that during Obama's time, the rate of civilian casualties dropped to, you know, effectively negligent or zero, uh, you know, or, or kept at 100, I think you said, uh, throughout the years. But wasn't it also during Obama's time that the use of drones kind of almost exponentially went up. Uh, and Mike, well, firstly, I want to confirm if that's the case, but also then how 
credible can our battle damage estimates be uh, when, you know, we're sending off drones that we don't see and we, we don't have accurate eyes on the ground uh, to actually confirm those numbers, right? So, so, so really, you know, two questions there. First one is the, uh, you know, replacing boots on the ground with drones, uh, yes or no? Uh, and then, of course, the accuracy of the uh, battle damage estimates uh, post this, you know, the commencement of drones in, in no man's land, effectively. Yeah, so President Obama definitely took up the banner of drone strikes throughout his presidency, mm. and and it was you know a hallmark of the way that 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 he used the military, mm. you know this idea that we were going to be you know surgical that you're <laughs> yeah. only going to 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 kill you know the quote unquote bad guy and you know the, you're 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 not going to harm civilians and which which is which is patently false. But it was certainly something, you know, where we saw, you know, drone strikes just picked up exponentially when when he was president. Mm. One of the the problems that you have, you know, as you've mentioned, is that you don't really know what's going on on the ground. You're looking through a soda straw mm. from, you know, with a drone. And even if you <laughs> yeah. have, you know, yeah. it, it, you, you don't have situational awareness, you know, you don't see what's going on in the area. And this is a huge problem. Uh, and it's reinforced by the lack of credible investigations. Mm. You know, I look at, and, and the gold standard for military investigations of, of airstrikes was really ISAF, was NATO in Afghanistan from that, you know, 2010 up until 2014 when, when, when NATO left Afghanistan. And, and it wasn't perfect. They still mm. had some, some issues, but they were conducting investigations on the ground and they were going to sites trying to better understand, you know, how many civilians were killed in airstrikes, how were they killed, you know, and, and, and make improvements, uh, you know, understand what, what parts of their procedures were not working. I mean, mm. things from, and, and, you know, some of it was, 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 was incredibly important. So, you know, things like, um, Children were being killed in helicopter strikes by mm. U.S. Apaches uh, because they were being seen to to dig um, IEDs into the ground at right. night. Right. And the reality is they were actually working on irrigation at night because guess what? You know, during the daytime in Afghanistan, it's super hot and yeah. the water is all going to evaporate. But, you know, some, you know, Apache pilot from wherever in the U.S. doesn't know you know, the reality the of, life, of life yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, but because of these investigations, they learned these things and they started mm. to implement changes. Mm. They stopped, you know, those, those Apache strikes and that we've, we've really lost that. And we've lost all sense of any investigative capability by the U S military and its allies. Wow. Uh, you know, we've seen to the extent where, you know, the French have said, We've never killed a single civilian. They've never, they've never um, killed a single civilian in any of the conflicts that they've been uh, involved in in the last years. The United Kingdom only recently uh, admitted to one, which is almost worse, you know, saying, yes, we've, we've dropped all these thousands of bombs. We've, we've, we've killed only one. And so it's not just the U.S., right? It's, it's, it's the allies mm. as well. But the U.S., takes a lot of the NGO reporting. Well, first of all, I should say that it's, it's been a fight to get them to accept the NGO reporting, right? Mm. At first, the pu it was huge pushback um, saying, yeah, what well, you know, tree huggers want and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just what tree huggers want. It's more of the, you don't know mm. all the super secret stuff that we know. Mm. And because of that, you, you don't have a full picture. 
right? Huh. You don't know how bad these guys are because we're listening to their phones. And our response is, we're in there with these people, right? When I was in the UN, you know, I'm in I'm in the villages in Afghanistan, right? You're you're meeting with with witnesses and victims. You're you're picking through the the bomb crater, pulling out pieces of the weapon. You're going to the hospital and getting the 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 paperwork on 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 what happened to them. You know, you're 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 getting the biographical information and they just weren't doing it. And they have, yeah. they continue, you know, to refuse to do this. And it, it got to a point where for NATO in Afghanistan, they had about a dozen people working on in, in the civilian casualty mitigation cell. All right. So that group that tracks civilian deaths, tries to learn from those deaths and then uh, feeds back into the, into the NATO system to try to improve things through investigations. Well, mm. That those dozen people dropped down to two people uh, when the U.S. was conducting war in Iraq, in Syria, and in Afghanistan, and and that's just maddening. Why? Uh, I mean, how, how, like, how the, is this just even even to the leadership to the military hierarchy? How is this even justifiable or make sense? I mean, I just don't. I have no idea. They just completely right. deprioritized right. any kind of investigations. Uh, and and it really got kind of pushed off to the side, and and yeah. and and it was maddening, absolutely maddening. And and NGOs were continuing to put information forward to them, saying, "Look, here's an instance where you killed someone. Here's another instance." And and you know, if you look at in in the in the past weeks, um, uh, Asmat Khan has put out a number of articles in the New York Times, really impressive work, yeah. where she got through Freedom of Information Act requests, a number of internal, you know, I should say thousands of internal. U.S. strike documents, scary, and yeah. yeah, and has been able to put together these cases where the U.S. said no, we weren't even there, we weren't even dropping bombs on that day, and and it just goes to show how poor even the record keeping is, which is shocking to me because you know we have this impression that well the military captures all the data and they know everything that they're doing, and well if you're going to drop a bomb, of course you know where you dropped it, and they don't. Mm. And now, so they had uh, the 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 civilian casualty group that that CENTCOM had had a couple people. Then they they doubled it. They got up to seven people after a while, you know. And 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 it's just this constant fight. And now we're working with CENTCOM. We're working with Africom. Both have a very different view on 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 civilian harm uh, and how they want to approach it. Um, but you know, you're, you're you're working with them and. Trying to get them to accept NGO data was a fight. Now they're finally taking it in. Hmm. The next fight that we're having is very, very often the NGO data is just written off as non-credible. And we don't really get a response. Why? You know, why was this determined to be a non-credible instant? You know, we're providing you with information on X number of civilians killed, and you're just saying to us non-credible. Well, does that mean? The strike didn't happen. You have no records of it. It was it was only you know uh, militants. Uh, no civilians were harmed. Uh, what is it? And right now, so right now we're wrestling with this, and we're really hoping that this new U.S. policy is going to improve the investigative process, because not only is it important for the U.S. to do it, because the U.S. is well, my country is dropping an awful lot of bombs every day, right? Mm, mm. But also because the Allies tend to follow what the US mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. And so I look to NATO, I look to Australia, I look to, you know, the various US allies and whatever changes the US makes in its targeting procedures through this new policy that's going to come out is very likely going to in some way influence 
how our allies uh you know deal with civilian harm in in, in the future mm-hmm. and you know this is going to have a a a, a snowball effect i would hope yeah. if it's positive you know yeah well i mean you yeah the leadership and and the parameters that are put in place that will create the environment within which these types of operations are conducted is inevitably going to have an impact on uh, the end result. Uh, I'm sure you can't talk in, in much detail about this uh, upcoming policy, but are there any particular points that you you know you can share uh, as to what the some of the major changes uh, are that you're trying to implement to you know the targeting process to battle damage estimates? And sure, so on? sure. So, like I said, we don't know what will be accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of some course. of the some of the high points of the of of the requests that we've put in are things such as an actual office uh, to deal with civilian harm uh, that is at a high enough level within the Pentagon that they can actually make changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's not just some collateral duty for someone who already exists, but to actually create you know some kind of center that can then you know conduct the important lessons learned and and, and apply them. Uh, you know, mm. across across the military. So it's not just at at some you know combatant command somewhere, but that the information gets out in in a much wider way. So that's that's one thing. Uh, another thing, is, and and very importantly, is the investigative process. Yeah. Is to you know, and and I speak to the military quite often uh, about investigations, and they say, well, you know, Mark, we don't have access. And, and I say to them, well, you know, there are still ways to conduct investigations, even if you're not physically there. You know, there's this magical device called a telephone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can give you lists of victims and witnesses. Um, there is an awful lot of things that you can do. Well, when I, I've been on, on UN war crimes commissions where we've had access and gone in on the ground and conducted investigations. And then I was on the Syria commission and the Syrians refused us access. And so we had to create procedures to conduct our investigations remotely. And we mm. were able to do that. And the reporting has been actually quite good. You know, we'd go to refugee camps, for example, interview people in refugee camps, um, used uh, satellite imagery, et cetera. So there are a number of ways to, to conduct investigations remotely. Mm. And, and, mm. and so these are this is another ask um, for the military. Uh, another thing is to create an uh, amends system, uh, which is, you know, a, a way in which people can uh, receive whether it's monetary recompense for the harm that's been caused, or if there's you know some other uh, way, you know, uh, rebuilding that, the house or something. Or, yeah, exactly, rebuilding the stuff. house, or you know, perhaps someone lives in an area where um, you know, like let's say an Al Shabaab area, mm-hmm. right? And if you provide them with funds, potentially Al Shabaab will steal it from them. So you know, what are other ways that we can provide them with with something so that 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 they can move forward with that? So there's that uh, the, a reporting system. So that civilians can actually provide information to the military directly hmm. uh, when harm has has occurred, you know, and how do they do that? You know, creating not only a web portal, uh, but you know, not everybody's got access to the internet in a lot of these countries. Um, but other manner, other ways in which they can uh, reach out and and provide information. And so you, you you take all of these little snippets, and then also you know then I, I get into the real weeds of mm. things like going yeah. in and and reforming the collateral damage process so that you actually validate the collateral damage numbers. Because I mean, Jesus, if it's thirty and you end up you know killing a hundred people, uh, you know your your collateral damage <laughs> estimate is useless. You know mm. what is why even have a collateral damage estimate other than to make yourself feel good about it, right? Yeah. So there, there are a number of, there's a real spectrum 
you know, everything mm. from the very wide view of, you know, creating a center all the way down to the real nuts and bolts things of getting deep into the weeds on collateral damage estimation that we've, you know, worked with, um, with the U S military and, and really we're, we're waiting to see uh, word is right now that potentially it could be coming out the last week of January. Right. Um, but you know, we're, we're really in a, in a hurry up and wait situation. Right. Okay. Well, that's, a, that's optimistic. I guess that there's movement in it. Um, and I guess one point that's probably important to make, I mean, as, as a military person myself, um, but someone who's probably motivated um, by slightly different ideals uh, to many of my compatriots, and that's because I have experienced conflict uh, myself as a child, so I've, I've always joined, uh, you know, I, I'm as close to a pacifist as one can be while wearing the uniform. Um, and, and one of my kind of kind of aims is to try and, reduce our, our need and want uh, to go to war. Uh, but the military, by and large, is filled with highly principled people and people who no one, no one sets out to you know, commit a war crime. No one's born Absolutely. a war criminal. Absolutely. Absolutely um, agree with you, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I work with some amazing people in the military, yeah. whether it's the JAGs or the operators, the targeters, the intel folks, it doesn't matter. They go through some incredible gymnastics to, mm. to try to protect civilians. But the problem is they don't know everything. And there yeah. is a level of expertise out there that NGOs and others have that we can help to provide them uh, so that they can improve their tactics, techniques, and procedures. Mm. But, you know, the reality is, no, they don't go out. You know, they don't, you know, try to go in and yeah. kill civilians. I mean, unless we're talking about the Syrian military, for example. Mm. But, mm. you know, we're, when you're talking about, you know, these Western militaries, they're not, their aim is not to kill civilians. Mm. But when it does happen, that's when the rubber's got to hit the road. That's yeah. when you have to say, okay, stop. What's gone wrong? What do we have to do to change? Um, was there a, a, a law of war violation? Uh, if so, prosecute. If not, mm. we have to implement changes. There has to be accountability. And mm. accountability for me is a spectrum. It's a mm. spectrum. Everything from taking someone who has committed a law of war violation and 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 prosecuting them and putting them in prison and not having your president, mm. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them, uh, which, which sends the absolute wrong message to everyone in the military, but having that, you know, law of war violator, violator prosecuted all the way, you know, through the spectrum to the lessons learned and, and different applications uh, and changes that can be made. So it's, there are a wide variety of things that accountability means for me. Yeah. And I wonder whether that's part of the resistance, I guess, you know, like you said, this is a, uh, you know, when NGO reporting comes in, it's deemed as, you know, non-credible, uh, you know, because oftentimes undoubtedly it's going to be, you know, <laughs> very damning to the actions carried out by that military force. Uh, and if there's no way to confirm with an eye uh, in any kind of, I don't want to call simple fashion because it's very difficult, to, you know, full stop. So there is there is no simple uh, confirmation, but uh, it's very easy to disguise it uh, or discard it as biased. You spoke to people in the village who are motivated by oh, you God. Know, financial incentives. Yeah. So many yeah. times. Uh, uh, people and, are and liars. They want money. Right. They're going right. to take advantage of us. That's right. And it's, it's, it's really exhausting for me to hear that because yeah. when you sit down with, with victims and witnesses of, of war mm. and you are conducting your investigation and you see the reality of what it is on the ground, these people are not lying. They are suffering. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that's a and I think that's a really powerful point because uh, uh, it, it is very easy for us to uh, through our lens of the world that's skewed in its own way um, uh, view those people as uh, as somehow exploiting the situation. Uh, but it's not until you've seen it, until you've been it, until you have spoken to people. And that's why I find your story just incredible, uh, where you had the, the gentleman whose hands you described, uh, who was digging, uh, you know, digging out his, 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 his deceased family. Uh, these stories are really important. And I think what you're doing, and I, you're, you're also bringing credibility because you're coming from, you're speaking from a place of, of, of intimate understanding. Uh, and I wonder whether... And this is a question, I guess, uh, uh, whether this is uh, part of the way we can actually uh, uh, build these connections between the military and the NGOs by having people like yourself who've, well, you've been really at the sharp end uh, as the you know, head of targeting. Um, you are now, I don't, I don't want to, I hate to use the term, but you're sitting on the other side of the fence, uh, but you're also an ally, right? Because you, you've walked in both camps. Uh, and I wonder if that's a way that you're able to build relationships, uh, close working relationships with your military uh, counterparts. Um, and if this is part of not just you, but this kind of uh, a wave of people that are coming in with these types of experiences into NGOs that are coming in with some serious credibility, uh, if this is perhaps one reason why we're seeing the softening of the of the resistance, uh, or, am I, or am I just being naive and, and it's not. I happening. think you're absolutely right. No, I really do believe you're right. You know, it's it, when, when you look at, for example, um, most of the people who work in the landmine community, you know, who are working for, let's say, Halo Trust, for example, mm -hmm. removing landmines in countries. Most of those people are former military personnel yeah. that know very well how to put landmines in, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they've learned you know, landmines are bad things. And so we're going to go and we're going to start removing them. Right. So, you know, the, the whole, the whole, um, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper. Right. So yeah. I, I very much look at it uh, in much the same way, you know, there, there's, there's myself at PAX, you've, you know, Amnesty has their person, you know, mm, Human Rights mm. Watch and, 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 and all of these NGOs are bringing in people with, with military experience. You look at ICRC, Mm. Right. The, the, mm. A lot of the military lawyers there are former military personnel. So mm. it's it, it's an invaluable skill to have, but it also gives you credibility because yeah. when you walk in and you sit with the with the military person, you know, and they look at you, they go, OK, you don't know anything. You're just going to give me your tree hugging bullshit. Yes. And the next thing you know, you're speaking their language and they can't they can't snow you with, you know, some acronym because you'll throw it right back at them. Mm, and, mm. you know, or I security think it, clearances, et cetera, you know, you, yeah. and, and they, yeah. they quickly understand, okay, this, this person's serious. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's part of the dismantling the stigma around, you just want me to go to jail uh, because that's a fear. That's an, you know, and that's, a, that's something we need to really understand as, you know, it's not something that I guess military talks about, maybe sufficiently enough, but about, hey, you know, there's a line that you, at which point you become liable, uh, you know. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's the, the, a lot of the war crime investigations I've done, you know, I've provided mm. information to, you know, various UN agencies that then, I mean, some of the, the work that I did for Syria, you know, was provided by the, the Syria commission to the Germans. So, mm. you know, that kind of stuff definitely goes towards, towards prosecutions, uh, that's, you know, yeah. without and a doubt. And it's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, because you know, we we in, when we wear the uniform, we are 
empowered to go and represent the nation uh, to fight the nation's wars in the nation's interest. Uh, but when it's kind of when the mirrors put back in you and say, hey, you know, <laughs> you can't just, uh, you know, uh, regardless of all the rules that are in place, uh, you know, you have some responsibility to the actions that you carry out. And I think that's an important yeah. piece of the puzzle list as, 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 we, uh, as we unfold. I just want to make a quick point. And, Please, and yeah. that is that I have seen recently that militaries are now coming to us. It's always mm. been the fact that NGOs and the UN, et cetera, have gone to the militaries and said, oh, you've done wrong. You know, here's how you need to improve things. Now they're coming to us. And they're saying, you know, you've put this, this report out because your organization was in, you know, Syria or, or wherever where we don't have access. And we want to know, we want to learn more about it. We want to mm. know more about what's going on. We, we would like some, we'd like access to your personnel, um, you know, to learn how things could be done better. And so, you know, for, for example, uh, NATO brought PACs, you know, brought PACs in a few, a few months ago, and we worked with them on civilian harm mitigation work. And, you know, they came to us and, and mm. we've, you know, we're starting to see instances where, I mean, just like the American uh, policy, the new Doty mm. that's coming out, you know, they've asked for input from the NGOs. Mm. You know? Now, of course, there is the concern NGOs have where, oh, you know, they're going to just say, yes, we met with the NGOs and, and they approved our policy and that's going to yeah. rubber stamp it. There's bias and, you know, on, on both right. sides, right? Yeah. There's bias yeah. on both sides. And, and, and our response will be, no, you know, when the policy comes out, we will say, it's great that there's a policy. Finally, mm. here's mm. what's right and here's what's wrong. Yeah. And, and let's work to improve it. Yeah. That, that's fantastic. There's one other question that I, and I'm conscious of the time that you've given me and I'm, and I'm eternally grateful because this conversation has just been uh, uh, just incredible. Um, but we've talked about a lot about the, the impacts of these bombs on the people on the ground. Uh, and of course, you know, it's, it's immeasurable. Uh, but what about the impact on the operators, on the people who have, you know, pulled the trigger, who, dare I say, believed uh, in something that ultimately proved to be wrong. What has your experience been with with, with that? Because I, I, I'm sure it's you, even just your own story about meeting the man, um, you know, whose family was deleted from this earth, uh, you know, and, and, and part of, you were part of the process, you know, maybe not responsible per se, but you were part of the process. How, what, what's your experience in being and what have you seen and, and, and how are people coping with it? Well, I mean, you know, the, the military has a very high incidence of, of suicide, right? And, and it's a huge problem. Um, I had a, so in 2005, a, a young officer contacted me when I was at Human Rights Watch. Uh, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm with the 82nd Airborne. Uh, I'm stationed in Iraq and we are torturing um, Iraqi civilians. <laughs> and, you know, this was uh, post Abu Ghraib. So it was really saying, hey, you know, uh, Abu Ghraib was not a, a, a one-off, right? This is a systemic problem. And I, I worked with him. Uh, we put a report together. Uh, I was able to, with colleagues, bring him to Senator John McCain, who's a U.S. politician who mm. was, you know, a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War, very famously was tortured uh, and has always, you know, during his life, he's now passed, but during his life, he yeah. always stood up, you know, against torture. And Senator McCain brought him into his office. And, and it was very interesting. At that moment, uh, the U.S. Congress was voting on uh, detainee treatment law and, you know, a, a, a new torture 
uh, mm. statute for, for the U.S. military. And it was not going to pass. And unfortunately, there was an awful lot of opposition. Um, and by bringing this young soldier to the various senators, uh, was able to actually get it. I believe it passed 96 to, to four. Oh wow. Um, wow! Which is which is which is amazing, or some, something like that. It was high nineties uh, where it actually passed. You know, he then went through um, you know some difficult times. He was in special forces after eighty second airborne. Uh, he saw quite a lot. He was in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, did multiple tours, and uh, unfortunately, a few months ago, uh, he was found uh, dead in his bed. And I, I'm, you know, today actually. Uh, today is January 19th. Uh, today would have been his 43rd birthday. Oh. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the scourge of, of, of conflict definitely cuts deep and, you know, we've seen it in, in the U S military and, and it's, it's a huge, huge problem. So it doesn't just go one way. There's no doubt. And it's not just, you know, people who are, you know, upfront in combat, you're mm. talking about drone operators as well. You know, because it's not like you're flying an airplane over, you just pickle the bomb, it goes down and you never see anything. You've, yeah. you're, 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 you've followed that family for days, right? You, you kind of get to know them. These guys give these people nicknames and then they, they, they drop a weapon and then they watch the after effects. And, 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 and then you're home that night, mm. you know, having dinner, dinner with your family that has to, absolutely has to. Uh, you know, tear you up inside. So yeah, it's it's a huge issue. So I think the forever wars have been a huge scourge on this country, and I'm I'm very sad to have been part of it from the very beginning. But I'm I'm hopeful that we can put it behind us. But I'm I'm disheartened when I hear policymakers say, "Well, you know, we're not at war anymore." You know, we're we're, we're and and I look like, wait a second. You know, what's going on in Somalia? You know, what about the support that we're giving to the Saudis in Yemen? You know, uh, what about the, you know, munitions that we're, we're selling around the world? Uh, give me a break. You know, we're not mm. at war anymore. There, people are dying every day. Mm. And I guess that's a, <laughs> I don't want to finish on such a dark note, but it's a really important dark note because I think it's one that we need to, contextualize and that's part of i guess my podcast is to is to lift the veil on on these narratives of war that you know hey firstly war just happens over there happens to them um and you know these people are guilty more often than not and therefore we're doing the right thing uh, but when you hear stories of uh, people like yourself who has been there done that uh in the true sense of the word um, at the highest levels of you know the u.s military might uh, i think it's uh, i think it's quite quite eye-opening Maybe my last question for you, I mean, given what you know now about bombs, missiles, drones, and everything you've experienced over you know, the last 25 years, uh, if you were the chief uh, of highway targeting right now, how would all of these experiences change your approach? Oh, God. Could you even do uh, the job? I, 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 that's, that's a hard question. I don't know. Let, let me answer it this way. I have spent my career now dealing with the combat of hostilities, right? That side of international law that says, you know, this is how wars should be fought. And I'm starting to wonder, should I have focused more on, should we be fighting these wars? Hmm. And I think that's an important question. 
you know, and it, it, it's time for our policymakers to start really thinking deeply about that mm. uh, so that we don't go into the conflicts, you know, with without our eyes open when we do go in and perhaps uh, and hopefully have fewer wars in the future. Mm. And I'm so glad that people like you with your background are asking that question because uh, that's that's yeah, that's a really important question and what we should be demanding answers to from um, our leaders who, as we said before, you know, Send, send us to war uh, with relative impunity. Not relative, but with full impunity. Um, on that note, Mark, I, I've taken a lot of your time and I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolutely uh, eye-opening conversation uh, and I hope that it'll start uh, more conversations uh, in militaries around the world uh, because these are absolutely important topics uh, that we should be discussing. So, um, yeah, really, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. You know, if 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 it weren't for people like you who are getting the word out about this stuff, then, you know, people wouldn't be hearing these stories. So, so thanks very much for what you do. Absolutely. And I'll be certainly recommending and putting a link to your, uh, your own podcast uh, along uh, as I put this out. Thanks a lot. Yeah. The next podcast is going to be about uh, an airstrike in Iraq and yeah. how one bomb uh, had effects that lasted for many years. So, you know, well, we talk about yeah. thousands of weapons, but what about that one? And I'll put a link to that because this episode will come out after that's released. Um, so I'll put a link to that episode as well uh, in my show notes. Uh, Mark, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Be well and have a great day. I'm going to bed. <laughs> Enjoy. Have a good night. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.